Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Natasha Tiku, a tech culture reporter for the Washington Post who is based in San Francisco. Tiku has a decade of experience helping readers understand how Silicon Valley thinks and operates. Most recently, she was a senior writer for Wired, where she wrote a magazine cover story about the term oil inside Google during the Trump administration, based on interviews with dozens of current and former employees. Tiku has also worked as a staff writer at BuzzFeed News, The Verge, Valleywag, NewYorkMag.com, and other places. So in this episode, Natasha and I discuss what a tech culture reporter does and how you can become one. How diversity in tech translates to tech reporting. Hint, they have a lack of diversity too. And most importantly, Natasha's big article out now titled Google's Approach to Historically Black Schools helps explain why there are few engineers in big tech. You don't want to miss this episode and the details we cover about her current story. So let's hop into this episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe today. Now let's get it. Welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I am thrilled to be joined by Natasha Tiku, a tech culture reporter at the Washington Post. Hi, Natasha. Glad to have you here today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yes, of course, of course. And so I want to just get started with introducing you to my audience and talking a little bit about tech culture reporting. So I've heard the term before, but tell my listeners what exactly is a tech culture reporter? (laughs) <laughs> That's a great question. It's um, an increasingly crowded intersection. I think you'll see it in many, many Twitter bios, um, but obviously there's a very broad interpretation. Um, for me, I'm a little bit more focused on, um, you know, s- some people look at how uh, technology has influenced mainstream culture, you know, look at it a little bit more from the user perspective. I tend to focus on the culture of Silicon Valley in particular. So, you know, that means the way that executives think, the ideologies that they believe, the way it impacts workers, trends that we have seen in uh, some of the labor movements in tech, uh, you know, looking at this as a very influential sector that, you know, eventually does impact often, you know, their users and the rest of the world. I do want to point out that your articles and what you're writing about is not just like, oh, look at this amazing new tech feature that is coming out. You get to the nitty gritty, like hard conversation within the tech community. Thank you. <laughs> you know, that's that's my aim. Um, I really think that, uh, like I said, the ideologies and belief systems that make these executives and companies run, I think it's so important to understand that in order to understand, you know, their policy decisions, the impact of their products, when you understand what's going on inside the companies or just, you know, inside the heads of the people who work on these things. It just, I think, is, is very illuminating. And um, as tech becomes more and more powerful, It's just really important to understand where they're coming from and be kind of fluent in in like the culture that they want to see perpetuated through their products and services. 
That is very true. And as I mentioned, we're going to get into more detail about that. But to start off our conversation today, I want my listeners to learn more about you. So (laughs) I want people to understand that you are not new to tech reporting. You have been in the journalism field for over a decade. And so I just want to start off with what made you choose this career path? Sure. So, you know, I've always been really interested in in writing and uh, but I, I never did like the college newspaper. I was more interested in like short stories and and uh, poetry. And I when I, I had a, a difficult time kind of trying to break in. I was living in New Jersey and applying for jobs in New York. And as you might suspect a New Jersey address doesn't open a lot of doors. Uh, And I also, I'm Indian and my parents put a huge emphasis on graduate school. So I decided to go to journalism school because I tried to take the LSATs and had a massive panic attack. And then it turned out to be like such an amazing fit because I've always been a, like very interested in people and journalism just allows you, you know, if you find something fascinating to just dive into it and, you know, ask all of these questions. It just gives you an entree into so many different worlds. And, you know, when you're, when you find something that kind of piques your interest, you're able to just go after it. And my first job out of journalism school was at this kind of very straightforward business magazine called Inc. And this was right around the time the first iPhone came out. And at the time I was writing about green businesses and the the magazine just really wasn't interested in that. And I found like I had access to all of these founders, like the founder of Foursquare and not, not because I was high up in the magazine, but actually uh, they kind of have entry level reporters be fact checkers as well. So, you know, I'm talking to Elon Musk sometimes or like Paul Graham, who's the head of Y Combinator. And, you know, you just got to see their influence grow. And to me, um, you know, the fast changing pace of technology, the way that it was impacting our daily lives, you know, this was also a time of a big uh, upheaval in media itself. You know, they were moving like magazine and print used to be so predominant, like nobody wanted to write for the web. So I'm watching all of these upheavals in my own industry struggle to keep up. And it just seemed like I want to go where the change is happening and I want to focus on that. And that's just, you know, kind of how I fell into it. Not because I was like a business geek or a tech geek, but just because I've been following these people, you know, since since they kind of got started. Yeah. And we have to mention, because you kind of almost slipped past there. So you talked to Elon Musk even when you were starting out as a tech reporter? Purely as a fact checker. <laughs> it was definitely probably a very short conversation, but but I got to, you know, see like, uh, you know, I'm going behind the scenes in these magazine features that are shaping the way that we think about Elon Musk, right? And like, you know, you're kind of watching him become this public figure. I mean, I never thought it would be like, manifest itself the way that Elon fanboys do now. But yeah, so it's not like I'm getting to, you know, kind of ask them my own questions, but I am getting to kind of see how the sausage gets made with, you know, with their myth making, with their reputations, with how they present themselves. Actually, you mentioned you started in New York when it came to reporting and now you're based in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed a difference in reporting from being, you know, in New York where San Francisco, you kind of getting everything right away, right? Yeah, you know, there there is a 
a massive difference, I, I think, in being in San Francisco. Part of the reason I came out here was because I was working at um, a blog called Valleywag, and uh, there was a lot of criticism of us. Uh, just, you know, tech people are extremely sensitive, and they do not like to be covered in the way that other powerful sectors are, are covered, right? Like celebrities in Hollywood or even Wall Street, you know, they're kind of used to having a little bit more control over their, their image and what constitutes news. But one criticism of us was that we were writing from too far away. And I had always been kind of jealous of the people who had been in San Francisco during the dot-com boom and bust. It just felt like this historic moment. And, you know, they got to watch this incredible rise and fall. And I wanted to better understand, you know, if somebody had written about New York and they didn't understand, you know, the neighborhoods or the texture or what people were like, I would also be skeptical of it. So I wanted to like, you know, kind of live in this historic moment of watching these powerful people ascend. Uh, but also, yeah, like kind of give it the texture and the narrative that I would hope, you know, any story would have. And I, yeah, I thought that was a fair criticism. And so I ended up moving out here um, like five or six years ago. And from your perspective of moving out there, has anything within your reporting process also changed? Because I feel like East Coast, West Coast, there's a little bit of difference. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, the media atmosphere here is is very different. Um, you know, I think there's a lot more overlap between people who would like to work in the tech industry or have worked in the tech industry and and media Whereas in New York, like there's no, there's not really a lot of switchover. You're not often wanting to go into the industry that you're not go into, but like, you know, there's a little bit more of a divide and, you know, just being able to meet people face to face, going into the offices, getting a sense of, you know, what people are like in their non-work hours, which are non-existent, right? Because everyone is always working all the time, but yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to have, to be able to picture people as they go about their lives, you know, where they live and what it's like for them, the kind of social pressures, you know, just seeing like the extreme lack of diversity. It just really hits you in the face when you get here. It's impossible to ignore. And you can see how insulated a lot of tech workers can be based on, you know, say they're, you know, if you if you work at the Twitter building in downtown San Francisco, there's like a blue bottle around the corner and this like fancy apartment building and this super fancy um, grocery store underneath. And you can just kind of like live in this little, you know, this little circle if you want to, or if you're living in on the peninsula, um, you know, in, in Mountain View or in Menlo Park, you know, you just might not encounter the kinds of environments that like are just de rigueur in, in New York, you know, like it, so, so understanding where they're coming from has been, I think, really helpful. Right. And do you mind if we touch on diversity within the media rooms? Oh, of course. Yes. So from your perspective, and I mean, even now that I'm thinking about it, that you brought it up, I do not see a lot of, for instance, people of color or black tech reporters. Why do you think that is? I think it's so important to point that out. Uh, you know, I, I I had written actually a piece like back in, now I'm realizing it might be 10 years ago, but like how the, the lack of diversity in tech media is the same as the lack of diversity in tech. So it's a lot of those same factors culling from elite schools, 
you know, looking for people who have the ability to work low paid internships, or, you know, for example, to live in New York City to have an address that, you know, you're close to the, like, how exactly are you affording this on, um, on a entry level journalism job or an internship? I remember there was one that paid, I, I wanted to take it so badly, and it paid $7 an hour, you know, or even just like, I couldn't get like the money to to get my New York address so I could apply for the jobs and seem like I'm already a city girl who they might want to hire. And then there's just a huge amount I think of bias and and discrimination there you don't see people like yourself in positions of power in media. I'm I am seeing that changing. There are for example, um, the Post is hiring for a bunch of positions and I reached out to, you know, or, or people reached out to me, like there's a growing number of incredible underrepresented tech reporters and they're doing such a great job because they come at things with a different perspective. But yeah, all of the usual reasons why it's hard to break into a very classist and homogenous segregated industry. And I will link to your article in the show notes for this episode that pe- so that people can read it and get from a firsthand perspective of someone who works in the tech media industry and sees the bias. And it's crazy because I'm a Black woman who works in tech, I don't see a lot of people who look like me within the space. Numbers are increasing, but currently that's not where we are. Mm-hmm. But to see that translate from the actual tech work environment to the tech media environment is a little bit crazy, but it's not surprising. It is. I mean, and and I think that it is such a, you know, it's such a tragedy to not have those perspectives covered. Like it's so essential, you know, Black users are um, like some of the earliest adopters, obviously hugely influential in terms of like the you know, culture on various apps, their their ideas, their creativity is routinely, you know, monetized by other people. There's been some changes around that, but like, it's just uh, to not have, I, I just always thought about it around when people first started appreciating Black Twitter, like to not have a Black reporter writing about Black Twitter. It's just like, like, we're all missing out because we're not hearing these perspectives. It took way too long for people to start taking issues about race seriously. You know, I think it's beneficial from every perspective, like just in our understanding of ourselves as as like digital consumers, digital users, but also just in our like understanding of the richness of the world. So I, I think that, you know, when they say that diversity is good for business, it's extremely true for tech media as well. And I hope that people start to appreciate that. I agree. And that even reminds me of one of the reasons that I started the podcast. As a Black person who's working in tech, I never saw our stories in any part of mainstream media. And so to actually hear our honest and raw opinions of things, I had to either search like very, very hard or look for conversations like on Twitter where people mm-hmm. are having these conversations, but it's still not part of mainstream media. So I'm glad yeah. this is getting called out. I'm glad it's recognized. And we will even go a little bit further from the writing that you did and how you're also calling out some of these biases just in the industry as well. But to wrap up our segment about you and your career, so since you are a tech culture reporter and we know that there is a lack of people of color who are in that particular field, what advice do you have for people who look like us and want to become a tech culture writer? My advice would be to try to 
write examples of the stories that you want to be covering. So, um, you know, we talked about the problems of, um, you know, everybody should be able to be paid for their time and paid for their work. However, there is a lot more opportunity and avenues, channels to get your work published than before. And I think, you know, your work can speak for itself. So if you are able to even just put a post up on Medium or like, I guess I would worry a little bit less about where your work appears and a lot more about like, okay, the best way to prove to an editor, if you want to get hired somewhere that you can do this job is to like show examples of the job. So like, if you want to be writing about um, a particular aspect of like black users on TikTok, say, or, you know, you don't need to be writing about black users, whatever you want to write about, whatever, like you think is not being covered. The best way to do that is to just have examples of it and you can show, you know, your unique perspective and the way you were able to do it. It's just, it's really hard to break in, but it's easier to show that you can do it than it used to be where like you'd first have people start out like working on really short pieces, you know, for example, like front, they call it like front of the book for the magazine or introduction, you know, like kind of style stories for um, newspapers. And now you can do a little bit more of that in-depth reporting without having to kind of go through the usual like hierarchy and paces you can just shortcut that. I mean, I think we've seen the same with folks in tech, right? Like there's a lot more women of color who are like Gen Z or young millennials who are being hired into VC firms. Now, of course, you're going to encounter like the same kind of barriers to advancing, but I would say like, don't be scared. Your voices are necessary. Also, you can DM me. <laughs> I would be happy to like advise, you know, all my information is, is public and in my Twitter bio, including my cell phone. Uh, so you can like message me on Signal or whatever. And I'm, I'm happy to help. And I'm sure that some of the people who are listening to this episode will definitely take you up on that. Great. One thing that I want to talk about, we talked about the evolution of tech reporting. When we say reporting, a lot of people have different definitions of that. So. From a tech reporting perspective, do you see a lot of people still writing? So writing articles and pieces, do you see a lot of video? What are the different mediums people are doing for reporting? I would say that there is, and you know, this might be like a little bit myopic, like maybe this is how the media industry thinks about things, but they like to put a uh, bold line between um, editorial and reporting. So, you know, editorial means like, like you and I could write about any of the topics that we're talking about now, probably without picking up the phone or doing any research because we're steeped in it. Right. But like reporting, you know, involves uh, doing that firsthand research, getting the data, talking to people, you know, you, you have a hypothesis, obviously, you know, you have ideas that you want to get across and, and that very much influences who you might call. However, you know, you want it to be based in fact and not just observation and idea. So, so that's like one distinction. I'm not seeing a lot of, you know, you, you wish that like all of your, publications, resources with video and graphics, like you wish you could have access to it for all of your stories. Um, you know, there's been a slow evolution. I got to work with our uh, awesome data team for to make some charts recently. And that was great. I mean, I think that reporters are really open to it. It's just kind of, you know, 
media companies are sometimes legacy companies. And as they're adjusting to video and such, you know, it takes a little bit of time to like incorporate those two together. But I think people are really branching out with like, you know, you don't need to wait for your editor to like start a sub stack or get on Clubhouse. You might need their approval if you're, you know, going to be representing your company or like Twitter spaces or something. So I think reporters are eager to experiment and probably hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that, especially as like more digital natives are coming up in the workforce and they're like naturally kind of adept or have had more experience with video editing and podcasting or, you know, they want to have a, you know, they want to produce the kind of media they consume, right? So, so Natasha, you actually brought up a great point. The recent article that you did, which was talking about Google's approach to historically Black schools and helping explain why there are few Black engineers in big tech. So that, let's just start off with what motivated you to write this piece? Sure. So um, this the idea actually started percolating last year, you know, during the George Floyd protests, because one of my colleagues at The Post had mentioned that you know, I've been covering diversity, race and gender in tech for a long time. And she mentioned that tech companies or companies in general were only recruiting from like the Howard Spellman's Morehouse's, you know, they weren't even looking at other HBCUs. So it was like both intriguing, you know, kind of unsurprising in a way, but I think it just was like, okay, I have to dive into this because when you read the annual diversity reports that tech companies put out, you know, it very much sounds like they're, they have exhausted every avenue, you know, like if there is a black engineer, they have tried to hire them. And, you know, you look at like the um, annual totals, you know, they don't, there's not a lot of transparency in how they're spending diversity recruiting. And I should also just say, I hate the word diversity. Like, I think it just kind of glosses over the fact that these are race and gender problems, you know, and when people say like, I'm a diverse candidate. It's just, it's, it's great for headlines because it's less word count, Um, you know, and everybody kind of knows what you're talking about. And so I've certainly been guilty of using the word, but I'm going to try my best in this conversation and always like going forward in my reporting to say when it's about race or when it's about gender or um, uh, intersectionality or what have you. But, um, you know, they, so in their like diversity budgets, it sounds like it's $150 million or a hundred, you know, a hundred million dollars. And you think that that means, yeah, they would have exhausted every avenue. So, so last summer I started calling, um, different computer science engineering departments at different HBCUs and just talking to them about what they were seeing. And they had some really interesting stories about kind of comparing what students were experiencing. And so, for example, like at North Carolina A&T, which routinely graduates a top number of Black engineers in um, the bachelor's degrees in computer science every year, they we're saying that in the past couple years, they've seen, they've been hearing from the interns who are coming back more overt instances of bias and more overt instances of racism. And they were talking to me about how in some cases, interns aren't wanting to go back to that environment, um, not just at um, North Carolina a but but at other HBCUs. And they're choosing to either look 
at tech company offices in cities where there is more diversity. So like the DC Google office or, you know, uh, other cities, or they're looking at accounting firms, you know, like PricewaterhouseCoopers or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan or American Airlines, places where they feel like the companies may have put more extra effort into making them feel welcome. But at the time, it, it wasn't like you know, their observations were more broad and not specifically about tech. So I I just had that in mind. I wanted to get that information out there, but I was looking for kind of a, a, you know, a story angle. And uh, then in December, actually late November, Google had fired their um, star AI researcher, Dr. Timnit Gebru. And I had talked to Timnit, I had done a profile of her and her story had motivated a woman named April Christina Curley, who is an HBCU recruiter at Google, who had worked at the company for six years, was extremely well known and like influential in shaping their efforts to recruit from HBCUs because of what happened to Timnit. April decided to post some of her concerns and stories about the bias that she personally experienced and the retaliation and the pushback that she experienced advocating for HBCU students. So her thread went like, like it did numbers, as they say, like 45,000, I think the last time I looked retweets, because I think it just, you know, really like struck to the core of what people suspected, you know, or feared about the bias that students were facing and to hear internally how frustrating it was and how like the people who are advocating so hard and facing an uphill battle and facing pushback internally, like how they're treated versus what you hear, you know, in those annual diversity reports. So in any case, you know, April, the light that she shed on Google's side of this HBCU relationship, you know, the other side of the pipeline, it just gave me an opportunity to go back to some of the same people that I had reached out to and try to write um, something a little bit more comprehensive that uh, that looked at what's happening inside Google. And I think I write about Google a lot. And I, I think that they are just such an influential tech company in terms of the culture of Silicon Valley. You know, the technical interviews, all of the things we hear, like you must hear this a ton about, like, is whiteboarding the best way to vet an engineer? You know, all of the criticism, like a lot of those process and procedures of the, of the technical interview and the tough questions and how those things are framed, that was replicated from Google. And in the same vein, um, the way that tech companies approach approach diversity, that's also replicated from Google. Other companies have done this same outreach style to HBCUs that Google did. So I just thought, um, you know, yes, it's looking at one company, but like if we want to understand why the numbers haven't changed in terms of the rise of Black engineers, like this is going to be helpful for the whole industry, I think, to look closely at this. Yes. And Natasha, we have so much to unpack here. So I hope you're <laughs> So let's start with April's just information that she provided. I believe it was early December, I think the first week of December, where she just unloaded all of her yeah. tweets up. She mm-hmm. released everything that had happened to her at Google. And I personally read that. And when I first read it, I was just like, oh my gosh, like this happened to you within this whole span of time. And so then to read your article, which first off, let's start with 
you brought to the table facts in your article. You went and interviewed people. You brought real numbers to your article. Like, like a lot of publications now have, I guess, kind of like an editorial feel where it's like either they're bringing their own opinion or they're reading another article that it's uh, another publication posted and just like re-summarizing everything that they think happened. You right. went directly to the source. And you went directly to the people and the individuals involved and you got firsthand accounts of what was going on. And you kind of touched on it, but I want to just go into more detail because I know it's in your actual article. But from a, the HBCU perspective of what was actually going on. Yeah, you know, it's such a um, it's there's so much nuance, like even though my article was long and I was given the opportunity to take the time to report, which I think is is really the problem. I mean, um, with um, some tech reporting, it's just it's just hard to turn around that level of calling people and looking through the data and making it, um, you know, fact checking it, making it make sense um, and uh, doing it in a timely manner. And luckily, my editors also thought this was a really important story and they gave me the time to report. But, um, you know, the what I was hearing from HBCUs is it's just such a complex story because, you know, just to back up, uh, what I had learned based on this document from 2013, it kind of outlined how Google viewed their um, their plan to increase the number of Black engineers by partnering with HBCUs. So their initial proposal was to send a Google engineer to teach an introduction to computer science class. And the, the name of the pilot project was Project Bison, named after Howard's um, uh, mascot, and they had this relationship with Howard. And the way that they described the computer science curriculum at Howard and their extremely grand ambitions to start this at Howard, but then change the HBCU computer science curriculum kind of across the board, I think really struck people because, you know, I talked to some Howard faculty who were there at the time, and I, I should say, you know, there's no consensus. I think everyone had very nuanced perspective on both the benefits and the drawbacks of this approach. But some of the people, like, for example, I spoke to Dr. Nikki Washington, who I wasn't able to quote in the story, but she was extremely helpful. She said that, first of all, it was her suggestion that they do more engagement with HBCUs. And she had been trying to get Google to recruit from the school to further engage with her students who are already being hired at places like Microsoft and Goldman Sachs. And she said she had no idea that Google viewed HBCU curriculum so negatively. You know, when you read through Project Bison, it's talking about how, you know, even the top students that were recommended, they could not pass the interview. You know, they didn't, they lacked basic skills in coding data structures and algorithms. You know, not every HBCU faculty felt that way. I, I think uh, some of them are also really grateful for Google's help because it helped modernize some of the curriculum. You know, it, it made it a lot more oriented towards jobs in Silicon Valley. I think that, you know, one of the criticisms was that the curriculums were too theoretical, you know, a little bit more cerebral, like kind of focused on, on you know, in the way that academia often is. And they wanted them to not look at C++, but rather learn Python, learn project-based learning, you know, so there was a mismatch between what Google wanted from 
entry-level software engineers and what HBCUs were teaching, you know, but then you also have just systemic inequities around math and science education. And, you know, I talked to folks who said like a huge factor is also that privileged students at places like Stanford or MIT, where tech companies have traditionally pulled from, they might have had access to coding and computer science much, much earlier, you know, so they have been practicing for a long time. Whereas in some HBCUs, you know, like Howard wanted to make sure that the curriculum they're offering in their intro class is accessible to people who might not have discovered their interest in this or had an opportunity to pursue their interest in this until freshman year of college. I mean, you know, it's just so sad to even think that like, okay, you're starting freshman year of college and you can't like, you're already shut out of an, of like the most money-making and powerful industry, you know, things shouldn't be like that. So, so there's a lot going on behind the scenes that has nothing to do with HBCUs in a way and nothing to do with, with Google. That's just, uh, these are just systemic inequities in America, but yeah. So, so I think that for faculty and students at HBCUs, there's this mix of, you know, no one is denying that Google's presence on campus made a difference and that Google was earlier than a lot of its competitors in making these outreach efforts, you know, having a a engineer on campus. But, um, you know, with hindsight, since it's been since like 2013, they are pointing out some flaws in the approach, which first of all, see the problem as located in the HBCU computer science curriculum, rather than say, hey, if this was the best student, you know, from Howard and they're putting them forth. Why is it that your interview process like found them to be so lacking? You know, who is interviewing them? What what do they know about HBCUs? Like, what are they asking them? Like, are they interviewing them with the understanding that this person, you know, has a huge capacity for understanding and learning, but maybe just recently started, you know, on their journey for computer science or, you know, they didn't look at the biases in Google's interview process. And what's more, you know, they have uh, like Google used to have this perk called 20% time where you could pursue, you know, your own independent thing. But so the engineers who are teaching this, you know, they might not have teaching experience. Uh, They did try to get people who were culturally aware, you know, who had some understanding and definitely an interest in this, but they're, you know, in some cases they still have to do their job responsibilities. One of the graduates that I spoke to, Haley Lomax, she's an engineer at Lyft now. She had written a great piece on Medium um, that maybe you want to link to in the show notes too, um, about how her teacher is not being incentivized incentivized, you know, when he's, when it comes time for his performance review, he's not getting credit for teaching this class. That all adds up, you know, you're not investing the same amount of resources in this teaching, like, does this engineer know what to expect? Um, So, so all of these things together, uh, kind of shaped the impact that the program was able to have. And people were looking at like, you know, not just the number of interns hired, but like, you know, how does bias in the interview and hiring process maybe relate to the fact that we haven't seen a commensurate number of uh, actual full-time hires, you know, from the HBCUs, looking at the numbers a little bit. I think when I was reading your article, the main topic that asked me, it was the bias that is involved in their interview process. Like, These are giant red flags, especially when we've been screaming about diversity and inclusion for so long 
and Google is always saying they're doing all taking all these steps to make sure that their company is diverse. One, in your article, you call that bogus because you provide information and graphics around how the numbers aren't shipped. Mm-hmm. But two, the amount of detail and the explanation of the biases in their interview process, and yet nothing is changing with, within that interview process, was alarming to me. It was like the big red flag that you never want to see was right in front of our face. Exactly. Yeah, completely. And I'm so grateful to the employees who are willing to talk to me. Because you know we would have no insight into that. They're certainly not going to highlight that in their in their annual diversity reports. And I should say that you know Google has said that it has made efforts to remove that bias. But I think you know one thing in that in that same document that I mentioned, it said Google had not hired an HBCU grad into an entry level software engineering job. And this was a 2013 document. So this is like 15 or 16 years into Google's existence as a company. Mm-hmm. I don't think when you're saying like it's a pipeline problem, you could ignore the fact that's a generation. That's like right. literally a generation of people. Uh, you know, you could have like, so if you're starting from that far behind, you know, these things just are, they're all interrelated and you you can't ignore them. So yeah, it just, it really struck me. I mean, to give some specific examples that I had heard, you know, they said um, resume screeners and resourcers, they wouldn't know the names of the HBCUs. They didn't know what uh, like a divine nine um, fraternity or sorority was, um, you know, they would screen out kids for not being a culture fit, um, which is uh, a term that Google phased out in 2017. Um, Now they say they look for a culture ad, but I mean, you know, we all know how that works and how arbitrary that is. You know, I've gotten some like, of course, the usual pushback after the article and they're like, this is a colorblind system. You know, like if these students just like weren't able to make it, but it's not colorblind, you know, Um, there's so much bias involved, um, you know, unintentional or intentional. But I think, you know, the company didn't put the same amount of effort into peeling back those um, those assumptions and those practices. And you know what other feedback I've seen that you receive from your article? A lot of, well, why are we focused on HBCUs? Why are we focused on even bringing more Black people into tech? And for those people who are making those comments, what do you say to them? It's extremely, extremely disappointing uh, response but for the exact same reason that we need more Black people in, in media, it's so crucial. I think we have seen over the past year, like, let's use like extremely specific examples, right? Like after or during the George Floyd protests, when companies like Google and Facebook are making decisions such as, you know, should we take down Donald Trump saying um, when the looting starts, the shooting starts? Like, guess who they talk to for advice? They're Black employee resource groups, the Black engineers. They are expected to help these multi-hundred billion dollar, in some cases, trillion dollar companies navigate very real world problems. They are depending on their engineers. And within tech companies, you know, the part of the reason that the emphasis has been on Black engineers is because of the internal hierarchy inside tech companies. Um, you know, they're, they're also not hiring um, Black, Latinx, Indigenous people at the same rate for sales and marketing, um, PR jobs. There's been more improvement there, but they're not representative of our country or the 
billions of people or the billions of users that they have in that. But the reason the focus has been on engineers is because they have the most power, the most respect. Um, And Google has been influential in having setting up tech company cultures where engineers are held up higher than everyone else. Um, You know, even in companies where like the marketing is just as important or the, you know, product design is just as important. We still have that bias towards, um, engineers being invaluable in Silicon Valley. And um, I mean, the reason to focus on, so to me, like the reason to focus on black engineers is, you know, they were like, they can bring to light problems with your, with your products, with your services. Um, You know, it's also just like, don't you want the most talented individuals at your company? Forget even their, their, um, you know, what unique insights they might have into their own culture. But I know so many talented Black engineers and they are just like straight up like beautiful designers or uh, incredible thinkers. Why, Why would you want to shut yourself out from this pool of people. Um, And then as far as like the focus on HBCUs, I mean, um, for the majority of the time that Google has been in existence, um, that those are the schools that are graduating the most computer science graduates. I mean, I will say that there are very kind of for large scale companies, there are reasons that now they might be shifting their focus to other schools because HBCUs are relatively small. Like if you look at the data and you look side by side at like schools that graduate the top number of black engineers versus Hispanic engineers in um, the American Society of um, Engineering Education has this data. Um, You will see that like the top schools for uh, Hispanic serving institutions, the number of engineers each year is a lot greater. And we have seen this in the data that I looked at for my article, you did see the share of uh, top schools graduating black engineers it reduced a little. So they're coming from other schools that have made other diversity efforts. You know, there's MIT is graduating more black engineers. And so um, tech companies that need to hire on a massive scale, you can understand why they um, might be shifting their focus, but it doesn't explain, you know, why if they've been doing this for seven or eight years, I think if you had made those students feel like they were welcome at Google from the beginning, you know, it's it's been now another almost generation or half generation it could have made a really big difference there. And just to add on to your comments, from a perspective of making sure things are progressing in the right direction, if I'm seeing something and the numbers aren't increasing, something's wrong in the process. So I want to take a deeper dive and see what's going on within my process to improve mm-hmm. it. I don't feel like from what I know and from what you shared in your article, I don't feel like that was done. And it's kind of like, okay, was this just for show? Are we actually trying to make change here? Yeah, that's a criticism that I definitely heard from people involved, that it was just for show. And that might have influenced the amount of resources allocated. And I should again say that Google did allocate more resources than its competitors. But when you think about the amount of resources they allocate to I don't know, Project Loon or, um, you know, other priorities within the company, um, the way that they dedicate people and money and the timelines that they give those projects, um, the space to breathe, um, the room to innovate. It's just 
um, you know, co- not comparable. And I, and I should, and, you know, another factor that, that can't be ignored in, in, um, is that these companies are continuing to scale up really big. So if you look at the hiring data, you know, companies are making an effort, like if you're that far behind and you're hiring, you know, X thousand number of engineers a year, um, it's going to be hard to change those ratios for big companies. You know, for smaller companies, you hire three more black engineers, all of a sudden it looks like you're, you know, on a great track. So Google also has, and and other uh, major tech companies have their work cut out for them. Um, So, you know, that, that is a totally valid point, I think, to bring up um, from their perspective, like one of the challenges that they're facing. Yes. And also you mentioned how Google is, the leader when it comes to these different processes, be it from an interview perspective, diversity and inclusion, just all aspects of tech. They are kind of the, they create the model and everyone goes and uses that particular model. And to see that they still have so much bias in their interview process, as a person of color, it's almost like, wow, so this is still happening? When is actual, real, tangible change going to come? Right, right. Um, I mean, I think that the companies would say that they have made those improvements that, you know, those examples are from a few years ago, and it's it's not like that anymore. Um, you know, and there's no transparency. So it's really hard to to vet. I totally agree. And I just want to thank you because taking time to talk about your article, I know it is long, it is deep, we could talk about it all day, I will link it in the show notes. But I do want to just thank you for taking a moment to like, dig deep into what you investigated there and to also call out that from a reporting perspective, I think that's part of the essence of what we've lost in reporting is fact checking and getting the right figures to share within a particular piece. And I applaud you for like bringing that back to reporting, because as we know, especially over the last like four years with reporting, be it on television, written articles, whatever people are posting, fact checking has gone out the window. So it was (laughs) so refreshing to see an article with facts and like information from the sources. And it's just, it was refreshing. So thank you. Thanks for the great questions. A few more questions before I end the interview today. So you have always brought up the tough topics that a lot of reporters have not wanted to touch on. And you bring it with raw, real, honest facts to your stories. Are you ever afraid of like retaliation or what people are going to say or think about your articles? Oh, certainly. Um, you know, you're, you're, uh, definitely supposed to have tough skin and I, I try my very best not to let those fears stop me, but I would be absolutely lying if I didn't, you know, I'm kind of like racked with concern about whether I am representing things fairly, um, you know, from, from every perspective. And, uh, certainly, I mean, I've, I've, you know, it's, it's nothing compared to what my sources face when they come forward with these stories, but I have dealt with harassment in, response to some of my articles. Um, People have called me racist against white men. Um, You know, some of the emails that I receive are, are extremely disparaging. And, you know, my concern is not 
my concern is just accuracy and fairness. Um, you know, these companies are really opaque and I, you know, often, uh, you know, it's a way to marginalize workers and whistleblowers who speak up to say they don't have visibility into the companies. But I, I think, you know, that is a concern that I tried to mitigate by just talking to as many people as possible. And that involves, you know, them putting themselves on the line. So I'm really grateful to my sources, but, um, yeah, I don't think that you can discount and especially as a like, you know, again, it's it's very often the um, black women, the trans engineers that I speak to who are getting, you know, you don't want to play like a game of who's getting harassed the most, but like they are the ones who receive it the worst, who get, um, you know, put up on alt-right websites who, um, you know, don't get the protection and the, and the community support always that they need when they're being inundated. But I, I do notice that people come after me as, as a woman, as an Indian woman, more so than my male peers who might be also covering some of the same issues. Yeah, that's unfortunate to hear, but I am glad that you like take your safety seriously and <laughs> you know that things will happen based on some of the articles that you write, but it's a little scary, especially as a woman, like if someone's harassing you or threatening you and definitely a lot. Yeah, I just hope people understand because I think in some cases they see that there has been more support in recent years for folks like um, Tim Neat or April, and they might see the support that they're getting and they don't always see the massive amount of harassment, just like demeaning you know, just, it's just heartbreaking and it influence, you know, so, so they're doing this at great cost to their mental health. Um, you know, you, you can see these people who are pushed out of these companies, they're not rewarded for it. So you might be seeing that they're getting some social media, you know, um, accolades or support from their community, but I am telling you like the pushback is just as strong, if not stronger. Well, let's my last question to something a little bit lighter. So you <laughs> have been doing tech reporting for over a decade, but what is one of the most shocking stories you've ever had to write? That is a great question. I find the persistence of racial bias in the industry to be really shocking to me. Um, uh, It's just, you know, people ask me like, why haven't these numbers changed? Or like, you know, what's going on? And I'm, I just like, can't say enough that like they really just don't get it and off the record you really still hear things about lowering the bar it's truly shocking to me that people still believe the talent isn't distributed equally or that i mean I, yeah it's the fact that i haven't seen change over the past decade that i've been covering it is is surprising to me. And I guess I will also say like, just for one recent example, the way that companies don't value the people who make them look good in the media. Um, um, Ifeoma from Pinterest, like, so, so one of the things that she, she was pushed out of the, or actually, sorry, she quit because she was facing pay discrimination and, you know, she was underleveled. She was facing harassment internally and her manager had made some racist comments also, but like 
one thing that really got me is that she was responsible for some of the decisions that got Pinterest so much good press around its IPO. And as you know, like reputation can really insulate a company from the kind of scrutiny, uh, you know, we have as much as like, obviously it's a terrible, like a, a very naive way to look at companies. Someone is good or bad. Like that's just not how it works. Right. But like Pinterest was thought of as a good company, um, partly because it did things like try to properly moderate these like slave plantation wedding content on their platform or health misinformation. So internally she was advocating for the company to look at uh, Ben Shapiro and to look at some of the like white supremacists and be aware um, and and catch these things early on the platform. And because of that, she was harassed by by some alt-right media like Project Veritas, like her information was put out there, um, which has happened to other people I know. And I don't understand why companies don't realize like how your people are putting their careers you know, themselves on the line to make your company look good, um, to make sure your company is going in the right direction. And they're doing this all internally. You know, we only learn about these things after the fact when they go wrong and they're going wrong so often. I just, I'm like, why wouldn't you just as a business calculus, look at the cost of not protecting your employees for, from harassment or look at the cost of pushing back against people that are advocating for you to do the right thing. I, I personally find that shocking, but, but just these little things that, you know, it would be so easy to, to do better, to fix. Yeah, I completely understand. And I feel the same way when I read about these situations, <laughs> kind of just like, is this still happening? Like, this is, seems like such an easy fix in my mind. And yet we're still doing certain things that are harming people. And it's, just, it's crazy. One last question that I have for you. So a lot has gone on from like 2020, we're in 2021 now. What changes would you like to see in the tech industry this year? So many. Um, I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, after the last year and looking at the way that tech companies and tech billionaires have seen their wealth rise during the pandemic that has left um, so many businesses um, shuttered, so many people unemployed. Um, I think, you know, the, the way that we've seen this divorce from the success of the stock market or the success of these companies and the real world, you know, the, the actual economy, I hope that people see that and rethink the way that their companies impact even just their own workers. You know, I think that like the way I, I hope that the work that gig economy workers have done to try to highlight the conditions that they're facing. I hope that companies listen to that and think about proactively making changes now rather than fighting some of these efforts. I think that especially because we've also seen that automation is a long way off in many cases. And so we're going to continue to, you know, this isn't an interim situation. Amazon is going to need humans in their warehouses for a long time. None of these, you know, the companies who went public, DoorDash, for example, um, they're still going to need human workers. And so, uh, and the fact that they don't have business models that work, and we've seen, you know, some startups come around that have tried to 
operate a little bit more like co-ops or whatever. I, I just think you can be proactive. You see how this is playing out. Um, you see what your workers are facing. The world is paying attention. Legislators are paying attention. The press is paying attention. Try to do things differently. Iterate on these things. I mean, that's that's the thing about the lack of change, right? It's like you're not applying that innovation mentality. You're not innovating on what does the app look like for your workers. I mean, you know, for a reason, right? You don't want to show them that they might not be getting that much take-home pay once they pay for gas. You know, once they're idling, etc. But 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 I just hope you know they think about it even from a business perspective and how much difference it would make to treat these workers fairly. Yes. I agree. And Natasha, we have had a very excellent conversation today. Before I let you go, any final words of wisdom or advice that you would like to share with everyone who's listening? I don't know. I, um, I guess I just feel like, uh, you know, listen to what employees are saying. Um, you know, very oftentimes we would not have any insights into these companies um, and employees are coming forward and explaining to you how they operate um, at great, great cost to themselves. And it's, it's very illuminating, you know, even if you don't care about, about race and inequality in class, which I wish you would, but if you, even if you don't, it gives great insights into how these companies operate. So I hope that you listen to workers when they're talking. Um, it's probably your best light into um, the inner workings of Silicon Valley. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your time today. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the podcast on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please go subscribe to the podcast on the platform that you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.